and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. Do you work for or run a business? You can now raise awareness and funds for urgent change by joining the Brain Tumor Charity's brand new campaign, Businesses Against Brain Tumors. By declaring yourself a business against brain tumors and taking on your very own brain power challenge, you can raise funds for vital medical research while improving your own brain health at the same time. People have shaped our world and facilitated amazing amounts of progress through business. Organizations are connecting people every day, innovating in the face of challenges like the pandemic and creating products that make up our culture. Now is the time to take that power and put it into good by beating brain tumors. And we all know there's power in numbers. Brain tumors are still the biggest cancer killer of children and adults under 40, with treatments having changed very little since the 1980s. It's no wonder when only 3% of national cancer research funding is spent on brain tumors. So it's down to the charity and its community of amazing supporters to urgently enact change. Look for the Brain Tumor Charity on social media to find out how you, your colleagues and your business can be the difference we need to see to defeat brain tumors for good. Motormouth is proud to be officially partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, so a huge thank you for your support. If you can donate anything, you can also do that through the motormouth.club website or through the Brain Tumor Charity Direct, and together we can help every single person affected by a brain tumor. It's season nine, and we're really excited to be once again teaming up with F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality, and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport. And let's face it, any chance to get close to Formula One this year, we're all over it. And the brilliant news is you can now be trackside thanks to F1 Experiences. Enjoy the very best race tickets and track hospitality, first-class hotels, and unprecedented access you simply cannot get anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 Experience, visit F1 Experiences.com, where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 Experiences package by using the code MOTORMOUTH when checking out online. So, what are you waiting for? Experience the 2021 F1 season firsthand with exclusive access courtesy of F1 Experiences. Get booking today at F1Experiences.com. Hello everyone, Tim Sylvie here. Now, today's guest hails from Belfast. And did you know, Harry Benjamin, that the symbol of Belfast is a seahorse? And early merchants printed the creature on their coins throughout the 17th century, and two seahorses still feature on Belfast's coat of arms. There are also a few dotted around the city, including the seahorse sculpture at Belfast Port and the glowing seahorse logo on the side of the Grand Central Hotel. Belfast is also where Led Zeppelin first played Stairway to Heaven in Ulster Hall in 1971. C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast and the surrounding landscapes inspired the Chronicles of Narnia. And Hollywood star Liam Neeson made his stage premiere at the Lyric Theatre. But Harry Benjamin, to test your Belfast knowledge, can you tell me which famous ship was built in Belfast? Oh, it's not the Titanic, is it? Oh my God, you've actually got one right. I've actually got one right for a change. Oh, because oh. we were actually talking about that with one of my brothers the other week. And I, I was saying, I, I was like, are you sure? I swear it was built in Liverpool. And I was like, there's something to do. With, sorry, I thought it was built in Liverpool, but I, did it set off from there? Or something? Was that, well, was that it, where it... it was built. RMS Titanic was built in, in Belfast and there were various yeah. political reasons for that. Well, corporate reasons for that. Um, the various relationships between the companies that were building it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was done there. Can you name the year? 
Oh, uh, oh, oh, now you're testing me. Um, I, I, do I get a bonus point? Uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, was it, was it, oh, God. Um, do you know I'm, when it I'm, sunk? Uh, no, I'm really bad with my, uh, no, I don't. I'll, I don't t- I'll put you out of your misery. Know. So yeah. it, it was built in 1909. It took... Uh, oh, good, because I was it, thinking way off. It took three years to build, and at the time, it cost £1.5 million, which today would equate to something like £170 million. Um, so, um, yeah, very expensive project. But there you go, this will be your Belfast facts. And well done. That's the first question um, I've slung at you, which you've got correct in yeah, all this time. You. Thank you very much. Well, I was good with my New Zealand knowledge, but, um, but I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I'm pleased with that, because otherwise they would have been very embarrassing for our guest. Talking of which, <laughs> shall I introduce today's guest? Yeah, let's get on with it. So today we're joined by Mark Gallagher. Mark is a Formula One industry executive with an enviable CV. He's held senior roles in F1 for over 30 years, including 15 of those on the boards of two Formula One teams in the former Jordan Grand Prix and Red Bull Racing. He was a leading figure at Cosworth F1 until 2012 and has been involved with the likes of Senna, Schumacher, Button and Hakkinen. Chuck into the mix, Status Grand Prix, which he founded, which went on to become a race-winning team in junior categories. He's racing Le Mans and more. He's also been team principal for good old Team Island in the brilliant A1GP, which I am still determined to bring back. Um, his team won that as well. He's even consulted with one of my favourite kids' films, Disney Cars, Two of them, in fact, one and two. We're here to hear more about his life, careers, views, opinions. Mark Gallagher, welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. A pleasure to be joining you guys. And I'm so impressed, Harry, that you knew about Titanic. That was that was good going. <laughs> I think there'll be a lot of people who, uh, if I did not get that right, they would have thought, God, I really didn't have any kind of education at all. Uh, but Mark, thank you so much for coming on to the Motormouth Podcast. What an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Um, first of all, where, whereabouts are you at the moment? Where are you joining us from? Uh, so I'm sitting in my home office, which is, um, I live about three miles from the Mercedes-Benz factory in Brackley, uh, just south of back Brackley. And uh, yeah, set my home office stroke broadcasting studio for the last 18 months, study a lot of corporate speaking. So it's been a question of streaming uh, online every day, but a, a pleasure to join you guys and talk about, talk about racing. It's uh, always, always uh, a joy to do. Yeah, I think Tim and I can very much relate to uh, home studio stroke mm-hmm. broadcasting centres from home. Um, well, take us back then to the very start. That's how we like to, to start all of these shows, as our regular listeners will know. We like to go right back to the beginning and, and sort of find out a bit more about what life was like, you know, for, for a fledgling Mark back in Ireland. Was, was cars or, and, and racing always in the blood? How did you discover it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the... I didn't realize I, I was born to a father who had a passion for racing. And when I say I didn't realize that, my father was 46 when I was born, and we never really talked about racing. And by the time I started to get actively involved and really, really into it, he was already in the 60s or 70s. I only found out later that in the 1950s, he used to go to the Dundraud Tourist Trophy to see people like Fangio and, and Moss and Hawthorne and my mother told me he used to get ever so excited. He just loved the racing back in the 50s. So there was obviously something in the DNA there. But for me growing up in, in Northern Ireland, uh, as you'll both be aware, we had quite a lot of conflict going on in the province mm. at the time. And, uh, you know, terrorism was a day-to-day thing that we unfortunately lived in the middle of. Um, and what I found was that motor racing was one of the few sports which – brought everyone together and I used to go to uh, rallying and of course rallying in in Ireland is tarmac rallying so it's it's very fast and uh, pretty furious and they uh, the the caliber of 
of rally drivers and teams that were coming to Ireland in the 70s and into the early 80s was amazing. You know, with people like Ari Vatanen and Hanu Mikola and uh, Michel Mouton and, um, you know, Lancia Stratos. As, you know, you can imagine growing up in Ireland and having uh, Lancia Stratos coming flat out towards you at 130 miles an hour. It was a pretty amazing experience. And so then I kind of migrated across the circuit racing. We had one racetrack in Northern Ireland, Kirkiston, and I used to go there. And when I was about uh, 14, I met a 12-year-old uh, who was the son of a friend of my family's, and his name was Martin Donnelly, and he went on to become Formula One driver for, for Lotus and, and remains a friend uh, to this day, uh, which is kind of bizarre that we met uh, all the way back then. So circuit racing became something of a passion. We used to go to Mandelo Park uh, down in the, the Republic of Ireland as well, um, and that really kind of galvanized my uh, interest in the sport. So I, when I went to university, I went there very much with a view on the fact that I'd get my you know, uh, academic uh, career on track until I graduated, and then I would see if I could find a, uh, a way of moving into motorsport in some shape or form. So it definitely did influence, ultimately, my decision to, to leave Northern Ireland and come and live in England. And then just fast forwarding a touch to 1983, when you started your career in Formula One, you spent a few years working in the media and as a consultant to Philip Morris. Take us through what that involved and then how it set you up to join Eddie Jordan's team in 1990. Well, my first job when I left university was working for Autosport magazine and I worked in, in marketing and advertising there and then moved across into journalism Went freelance, uh, freelanced for lots of magazines, including Autosport and Motoring News. Um, I decided to cover Formula 3000, which was the you know championship below Formula One. And it was a terrific series back then, lots of uh, major teams and drivers and sponsors. And through that, I got to know Ian Phillips, who, um, when he was invited to become the boss of the Leighton House March Formula One team, he actually gave me or introduced me to Philip Morris, with whom he'd been doing public relations work, and he'd been writing all of their media and press materials. And so I secured that uh, contract with Philip Morris, thanks to Ian. And and simultaneously, I also was invited to uh, produce all the editorial for Canon, who were sponsoring Williams at the time. So I found myself working with Marlborough and Canon at a time when their big programmes, of course, were with McLaren, and uh, and Williams, so that was that gave me a real intro into working on the publicity side and the commercial side of racing, and quickly developed. It's amazing one thing leads to another because, uh, of course, I was writing about the teams and drivers for the sponsors, but within no time at all, I was being asked, you know, would you mind hosting an event? So I found myself on stage, you know, with Nigel Mansell or Thierry Bootsen or Ricardo Patrese and. And actually hosting hosting events, and so that, and that, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. So through all of those kind of networks, then you can imagine being Irish as well. Yeah. I had gotten to know Eddie Jordan. Uh, I first met him professionally at the Macau Grand Prix in 1987, which my friend Martin Donnelly, my childhood friend, won that uh, won that event. And we kept in touch and, and spoke quite often. And uh, when he decided to set up the Formula One team. In 1990, although we didn't race until 1991, the Formula One team was established in 1990, um, I came on board on a freelance basis initially to handle all the press and communications for 
the team. So, you know, it, it really is a kind of a, a sequence of events. One thing leads to another and suddenly you find yourself uh, having been given a great break. What, what, was, what was Eddie like back in those days? What was he like to work with? And how does, how does that first conversation go when, you know, he's, he's trying to get you on board for, for, for what's to come? Yeah, actually very, a very easy conversation because we'd gotten to know each other and I realised how ambitious he was and also that he ran a, a super team, you know, in, in Formula 3 and in uh, Formula 3000. And again, my friend Martin Donnelly had driven for him in Formula 3000 and then through Eddie's management um, got into Team Lotus in Formula 1. So we were all very much uh, buddies back then and Eddie... You know, and I can say this with the passage of time, you know, as I've gotten older and I reflect on uh, on that time with Eddie, I found him inspiring to work for. I, I, I was very, um, you know, very much in awe of what he had achieved and uh, gone, you know, he'd migrated from being a actually, a, you know, very competent, moderately successful racing driver into being a formidable team boss. And he was very good at securing deals. And then joining him in 91... And working with him over, you know, almost a decade and a half, um, it it was a really interesting experience because he he did that giant killing thing. You know, a private guy he sets up a Formula One team, which becomes a Grand Prix uh, winning team, and we had we had some really high points. And I found Eddie, I always continued to find him an inspiring guy to work with. Uh, like all of us, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and. Um, I think the the fact of the matter is that he achieved his goals and then you know he did leave the team in good hands. Uh, he probably didn't want to leave Formula 1 at the time that he did, but I remember having a conversation with him when he sold the team to Midland Group and saying to him, you know Eddie, in the fullness of time, the only thing people will remember is that you did fit Formula 1 for 15 years, you built a race winning team, you sold it and that team continues to this day. And when you see it now as Aston Martin Formula One. I think it's uh, a huge legacy for him to have left in the sport. Yeah, absolutely, and and one of the sport's great characters as well. And and as you rightly say, also one of one of the great uh, deal makers in the sport, particularly yeah. around that sort of time when um, you know the deals were probably set up slightly differently than they are today. But on that, how have you seen that landscape change over the years in terms of sponsorship and and you know, working with brands. Has it, has it changed a lot since the Eddie Jordan days? I think it has changed a great deal. Uh, I suspect some of the elements are exactly the same, the way in which you have to, to, to make deals happen, go out and network with people and create the right opportunities. Um, I mean, there's a really interesting point, which um, I remember Eddie... Jordan Ian Phillips and myself sitting down one day and looking through the budget for Jordan Grand Prix in terms of the money that was coming in. And this is late 90s, 2000. And the budget was almost exactly the budget cap we now have today. And when you think that that's over 20 years ago, when we were an independent team, it was a pretty good result. There are not many teams in Formula One today that have 140 million dollars most of which is coming from sponsors so you know we were doing a good job in terms of selling and bringing in deals but what i think has changed enormously is that the corporate landscape in formula one has matured a great deal i don't think chief executives make a decision to sponsor a formula one team today the way they did 20 25 years ago over a 
over a good dinner and a, and a yeah. bottle of wine and um, you know a few a few a few helpers. So I think it's much more professional. Um, I love the commercial landscape in Formula One. I think when I look at it today, I did an analysis earlier this year of all the sponsors in the sport. It's really interesting to see where the action is at. What you know, one in six sponsors today are from the information technology world. So they're either a hardware company, software, cloud services, data security. You know, so if I was still working in the sport, you could be sure that is something that you'd be focusing on. So I think, you know, the the maturity of the sponsorship industry is something that's changed. Um, I think deals are probably just as hard to secure, maybe even harder to secure. But on the other hand, I think Formula One teams have a lot more to offer today than they did 20, 25 years ago. My word, I wish, I so wish... Jordan had lived in the era of social media, the fun we would have had. It would have been just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Eddie Jordan on Twitter would have been absolutely... Yes. I mean, can you... I mean, we. I mean, without a question of doubt, we would have been doing a deal with Formula One to live stream Eddie from the pit wall. <laughs> um, you know, just constantly... We'd just have our, we'd have our own Jordan. It'd be EJ feed, yeah. you know, from the pit yes. wall. perfect. Uh, running commentary, Twitter updates, you know, it would have just been... It would have been fabulous. So, yeah, we had a... And this is... And going back to Eddie, he's a... Comp, you know, he... He loves the limelight, and that's a great thing because he's a showman. And, um, you know, that's that's what's helped to set Jordan apart. You know, we had this character leading the team who was just great fun and had a good sense of humor and liked winding people up, and and, uh, we had so much fun. So I think social media and uh, Jordan Grand Prix would have gone together very comfortably. (laughs) Yes, it would have been absolute gold. We loved Eddie. We we had him on here, and he... He he basically tore me to shreds, didn't he, Harry? He was because I knew I know his, <laughs> I know his daughter Mickey quite well because I worked with her. Okay. So, so he was laying okay. into me about um, my relationship with Mickey back in the day, which there was none. Oh, but he but he thought oh, he, see, he right. thought he'd have a good go at that. Yeah. But he, he he was um he was very funny, but also great. You know, it was. Did you have to bleep? Did you have to bleep him out? No, you you can say whatever Not, the fuck you yeah. want here, Mark. Oh, you can say. <laughs> <laughs> it's podcast world. Well, you see, again, again, that would appeal to Eddie because you know, back in the day, back in the day, we used to have to, um, we used to have to kind of edit him. You know, we used to have yeah. to say, "Now, listen, Eddie, this this thing's being recorded, so you can't use any bad language." And, and the two of you will not know, probably known about this, but quite early on in his career, Ralph Schumacher swore um, live on television. He said something was fucking shit or whatever, <laughs> and um, and he was told, "Well, you can't say that." and um, he said, but Eddie uses that word all the time. What's it mean? And it turned out Ralph didn't actually know what it meant. And he had actually learned it from Eddie. And he thought it was just an adjective, like, you know, or, or you know, he just thought it was like saying something was very yeah. something. It was just like, you know, it was just hilarious. So anyway. <laughs> that is absolutely yeah. brilliant. It was, Eddie was absolute gold. We only had about, he would only give us about 30 minutes because he was he had to be somewhere or something. So he was, we were busy. Oh, always was the beast, we yeah. were busy dawdling, like chatting amongst ourselves. And he was just like, come on, get on with yeah. it. Let's go. Oh, he was, uh, it was a living leisure. And what you say about, you know, his legacy as well, living on, you know, to, to, to looking at Aston Martin today and how far that team and all the ups yeah. and downs and its mm, various guys has come is just incredible, actually. Um, but uh, well, come, we, come I mean, I can, I mean, I can tell you, oh, I, I found, so, um, I'm moving house at the moment, so we're having a bit of a clear out and I found some floppy disks. Can you believe floppy disks, you know? 
And I don't even have a floppy disk reader, so I went and bought one on Amazon, and I downloaded what was on this floppy disk, and I found a presentation that Eddie and I sent to Lawrence Stroll in 1999, saying, why don't you buy buy a share in Jordan Grand Prix? Uh, And, and, you know, we got an email back from him saying, or probably a fax or maybe a telex or, I don't know, something back from him saying, no, sorry, not for me at the moment. But it is interesting that 22 years ago, Lawrence Stroll was being courted by And it's also quite annoying because you think I could have brokered a really big deal there. And I I had a similar (laughs) thing, right? I I wrote to um, uh, Dave Richards because he was my only sort of in um, via pro, oh, right. via ProDrive, and and I was like, why aren't they already in the sport? So I wrote to him and said, because I kn- I knew his son loosely. I used to live with his son in Abu Dhabi. I was like, why don't okay. why don't why don't they join? You know, and he was like, no interest, wouldn't touch it. No, absolutely not. And then sure enough, a couple of years later, here they are, um, you know, doing great things and building a new factory and all the rest of it. It's just like, yeah, yeah, damn yeah. it, I would have made millions from that deal. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, who you know. It's all about timing. It's all about timing, exactly, yeah. It's all about timing. Oh, dear. Well, anyway, right. you you, uh, you moved across to Red Bull around 2004. Yeah. Very different beast back then, I'd imagine. Um, we've yeah. had a few of the old Red Bull, some of the first Red Bull drivers. Who's the, who did we have um, from the Red Bull program back then? Oh, we've had Christian Clean. Christian Clean. Uh, he's probably the earliest one from, from that Red Bull program. Have you had, had Christian on the show? Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah. Um, how was he? Fascinating. He, he was good because I, I did a bit of um, commentary this year for the uh, the International GT Open Championship, which oh, he was right, doing. Okay. I, I met yeah. him in the paddock and, and cornered him and went, can you come on the podcast, please? Um, and he was more than more mutt for it. And actually, he was. He was. I, I wasn't sure how it would go, but he was a, very, a lot of interesting stories, yeah. and especially a lot of a lot of the early days of Doctor Helmut Marco. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can imagine Christian's a great guy. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm more good friends with his dad, Johannes, and uh, and we have a kind of vague plan to go skiing uh, this mm. winter uh, together because they live in a lovely part of uh, Austria, and Christian's a quality. He's a really quality guy, and um, dare I say it, um, I don't think he was best served by Red Bull in the final analysis. And that, t- do you remember when they did that thing where they swapped his driver, Tony Oliucci, and everything? I mean, it was just. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, just- he found out that he'd lost his Red Bull seat via Mark Webber, who just told him, mate, you better look around for another seat because I'm taking yeah. yours. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that, that's, not the fir- that's not the first time I've, I've heard stories like that. And. When I was running Status Grand Prix, we in our first season in GP3, we finished second in the championship with Robert Wickens, and we picked Robert up because he literally he literally got a phone call at Christmas time from Helmut Marcus saying uh, Robert thought the conversation was going to be about uh, well, so you know what's the plan for next season? And Helmut said, I don't, I don't know what your plan is for next season because you're not driving for Red Bull oh, anymore. Brutal. And, so brutal. Um, I think you should go and get a proper job. <laughs> and so Robert, oh my God. Robert called us and uh, our, our primary shareholder at the time, Teddy Yip, um, you know, we, we had a quick call with Teddy and we quickly decided, actually, we'll stick Robert in the car. He'll be a ringer and, um, you know, he'll be, the, he'll be the guy who can do a great job. And sure enough, he finished second in the championship and then went on and won World Series by Renault uh, the following year with sponsorship that I secured for him from Russia. So they got, um, you know, the... the I actually get on with Helmut Marco. I understand why he gets a kind of a bad, a bad rap uh, at times because he is blunt. Like you can't believe it's like being hit by a train at times. But um, there's no doubting that that he's played a pivotal role in so much of what Red Bull have achieved. And uh, I suspect he's a. I mean, he is the bridge between Dietrich yeah. Mateschitz and 
and, uh, you know, Christian Horner and Adrian Newey. So in that regard, you know, he's done quite a lot right. But I think a few of the drivers that have driven for that programme have had pretty yeah. difficult experiences. I mean, it's, it, it is a brutal programme, but equally, as, as we've found from the drivers who that we've spoken to who have had success in it, you keep winning, they'll keep supporting you. As simple as that. Um, but, yeah. but I guess it was, a, it, it was a very different thing back then, so 2004 into 2005. Did, did you know as a group what it would go on to achieve? Did you already have that sort of laid down or, or was it a surprise when it really started to pick up traction? Interesting question, Tim, because I, so I was recruited by Tony Purnell when the team was Jaguar racing and the objective was to sell the team and, um, and then, and which we did. And there were two, two potential deals. One deal was Red Bull and the other deal was, um, a Chinese car manufacturer, and I got the Chinese deal. So I went and lived in, in Shanghai for a couple of months trying to pull that deal together, primarily to save the jobs of everyone in Milton Keynes. And uh, the Red Bull deal came off in November of that year, and <clears throat> Tony Purnell um, was unfortunately <clears throat> um, asked to leave, and they replaced him uh, with, of course, Christian Horner, who's a great guy. Um but Tony, Tony would have contributed a lot to that team had he remained, perhaps even in a different role. But it was really interesting then to be part of the early days of Red Bull Racing. In fact, particularly before Christian joined, and I, I don't say that, I'm not making any uh, criticism of Christian. What I'm saying is that it was it's interesting to reflect on the two months when Red Bull Racing was not run by Christian, and this was a year before Adrian Newey joined, so that was kind of, that was right on. That was kind of ground zero of the Red Bull Racing story, because the one thing I can tell you is that when Dietrich Mateschitz came to the factory for the first time in November of um, two thousand and four, he held a town hall meeting with all the staff, and in that meeting, he he spelled out his vision for the team. And I often, I mean, I think about it. I've written about it in my book. I you know, sometimes talk to clients about it. He was a man who knew exactly what he wanted to achieve. He actually said, my ambition is to win the world championship within five years. Now, he's talking to a workforce who have been Jaguar racing. They haven't won a Grand Prix at Jaguar racing. And he's saying, I'm going to win the world championship in five years. And that's what he, what, that's what he did. And all, he put all the building blocks in place, which included Christian Horner, included Adrian Newey, uh, included my good friend David Coulthard, who uh, you know, was given the job of basically coming in and saying, the, these are the things missing in this team, having come from uh, McLaren. And so I would say for Dietrich Mateschitz, absolutely on day one, he knew exactly what he was going to achieve. Um, and he's not someone who tends not to succeed. Um, I think for a lot of other, a lot of people working in the team, it seemed like a big ask. But as we've seen, as we saw then, and in fact, as we've seen with Williams over the last year, it's really interesting what happens when you get a change of leadership because the same group of people can suddenly start to to make really good progress and all that's changed is the is the style and so the red bull style was clearly on the right path pretty quickly just before we move on from red bull I, uh, i'm curious uh, i mean you've been a team principal you you know what that job yeah. entails and a lot of the people that you you work with and know are team principals like a christian what, yeah. what we all know what they do. They, they they front the team and they're the mouthpiece yeah. of the team. And, you know, you see the likes of Toto and Christian on Sky and whatever talking and, and, mm. and talking very eloquently about the team. But how much does that individual have to do? What, 
their, their daily job? Is it like is it like mostly people management and getting the right people in the right places, or do they have their fingers in all the pies? Like, do you have to know about engineering, design, people management, HR? Or, you know, what does that role really entail? Well, you know, Tim, you've just actually summed it up. I mean, it entails a little bit of everything because you are the chief executive. You are the senior person, the buck stops at your desk. Eddie Jordan used to say to me, you know, it's my name that's over the door. It's not Gallagher Grand Prix or Ian Phillips Grand Prix or Gary Anderson Grand Prix. It's Eddie Jordan Grand Prix. And, you know, for Toto Wolf, particularly as a shareholder, owns a third of that company. It's his baby. You know, he 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 has to explain to Daimler and to Sir Jim Ratcliffe at Ineos, you know, what's going on in the team. He's got the day job. And you do need to, you're never going to be an expert in every area, but you have to have uh, a capability of, first of all, employing the best people you can in those areas and then creating an environment within which they can, you know, be the best version of themselves. So, you know, Christian Horner and Toto Wolf don't know how to design a car, but they can certainly sit down and have a conversation with someone like James Allison or Adrian Newey, uh, who explains to them, well, we need to invest in X, Y, Z because we need to make the car go faster. So their job is to do all of that juggling in terms of the, the company's priorities. And of course, the financial, ultimately the financial well-being of the company is down to the, the key strategies, which the chief executive is ultimately responsible for. And I think, you know, Tim, to your point that, from the public perspective, I mean, I see a lot of criticism of team principal. Christian has been beaten up quite royally in social media this year for some of the things that he has said live on TV. TV. People have no idea of the pressure these guys are under. They are under intense pressure. And what you see on a race weekend with those Sky Sports F1 interviews is, I mean, it's not just the tip of the iceberg, um, although appropriate given they were talking about Titanics, uh, not just the tip of the iceberg, but, I mean, it's an infinitesimally small part of what's in their brain at any one moment. They're thinking about lots of quite difficult topics. And, and when you look at Christian and you consider that he's now been in that role for over a decade and a half, I mean, I'm surprised he's got a hair left on his head because the pressure that you're under. I mean, you would not want to be the person to telephone Dietrich Manischitz or Helmut Marko and explain you know, why the team hasn't been successful again or why we're having a struggle or why the relationship with Renault has gone the way it has or, you know, whatever it might be. There will have been lots. I mean, Christian will be able to write a several-volume, you know, autobiography when he finishes about his experiences. So they're under intense pressure, and it's because they are really having to somehow keep a helicopter view of the whole thing and make sure that it achieves uh, the ambitions that, that the shareholders have for it. It, it's amazing, isn't it? And I'll be surprised if Christian doesn't sign a Netflix deal when his time in Formula One comes to an end, because I, I certainly think that would get a lot of views. I'll watch it. Um, yeah, but Mark, your, your time with Red Bull came to an end after an incredible sort of journey with them, and then you then uh, moved to head up to uh, head up Cosworth's return. Actually, uh, actually F- I didn't. No, it's actually oh, that, no, no, uh, the slight, slightly wrong sequence there. So what, what oh. happened was when I. So Red Bull decided to move all the commercial operations to Salzburg. Right. Um, right. Or at least that's what they told me. Maybe they didn't like me, but anyway, they decided to <laughs> they decided to move everything to Salzburg, and I left the team and uh, set up Status Grand Prix with uh, Mark Kershaw, who's a, a Dublin uh, businessman and uh, and former racer. And Mark and I um, were introduced by a, a, 
a mutual friend, set up the team to do A1 uh, GP, and I I did A1 GP exclusively for the next four years. And the first two years were a total unmitigated disaster. Basically, I, I spent two years learning what not to do as a team boss. <laughs> and then the next two years actually were the opposite. I can, we kind of learned from our mistakes and then won the championship in 2009 with Adam Carroll. And weirdly, that's what led me going to uh, be invited to run the Cosworth program because when we won the A1 GP championship, uh, Lola asked me if I would help them with their bid to become a Formula One team. And I got involved with Martin Bahrain in that. And one of the things which I did while I was at Lola was I negotiated the Cosworth engine deal with uh, the chief executive at Cosworth. And when Lola got rejected by Max Mosley um, and Bernie for, as one of the new teams, uh, Cosworth called me and said, would you, you know, we, we enjoyed dealing with you. And we think you did a good job putting that deal together with us. And we think you could maybe run our F1 program. So oh. I found myself headhunted to go there and <clears throat> ended up sitting in front of, you know, Frank Williams and Patrick Head yeah. and uh, <laughs> the, the, guys, the guys at Caterham and uh, what became Caterham and HRT and USF1, stillborn USF1 program yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Manor Motorsport. So, yeah, it was a... Uh, it was a big shift, but I'm um, an absolutely enjoyable thing to have the opportunity to do. Well, you know what? Before we, we dive then into the Cosworth stuff, let's let's do let's go chronologically because I know Tim loves, yeah. and I know you know this. He loves A1 GP, and of A1's course, brilliant. You know, it's A1 is fantastic. Bring <laughs> it you know, back. Having watched clips of it, it is absolutely incredible. The sound, the crowds it drew yeah. as well were fantastic. Some of the places. Well, you, see, you say the crowds, but let me tell you a story because uh, what uh, first first ever A1 GP race, Brands Hatch, they promoted the hell out of it. It was the most amazing event. Were either oh. of you? No. no, no. Okay, okay. It was just like the ultimate motorsport festival. We had families there. We had, um, we had a fairground. It was packed out. We had the most amazing weekend. We then went to the second race, which was in Lausitzring in Germany, only to discover that A1GP had rather kind of forgotten that they had a race too. <laughs> um, and there was no one there. There was no oh, one in no. Lausitzring. <laughs> I, I, I mean, when I say no one, I mean... It was like being there on a wet Tuesday for a test day. There was just no one there. <laughs> oh, um, no. And, and the thing I always remember about that is that that's how A1 continued to go. We would have these massive, yeah. well-attended events where there'd been a lot of promotion, and then we'd have another event where there was no one. And the one I always remember was in Estoril. There was no one there. And then we spotted this guy in the grandstand opposite, and I sent one of our team to go and get him and offer him a paddock pass. Um and he came down and he had his Labrador with him. And uh, we said, oh, you know, we're so pleased that one fan turned out to watch it. And he said, no, no. He said, I was walking the dog and I wondered what the noise was. Uh, literally one man and his dog. And he, wasn't even, he wasn't even a fan. And he ended up staying all day. And we had, he had lunch with me and Mark and Adam Carroll. And, you know, it was like, <laughs> hilarious. What a day for that so, man. It was a very personalised experience very, in A1GP. Very, you know? very personalised. But, but honestly, that series is so cool. And and we had Adam Carroll on here. We chatted to him about it. I was like, Adam, I'm bringing it back. I think I mentioned to you when I, I messaged you on LinkedIn the first time. I was like, honestly, Mark, yeah. it's, it's coming back. I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it back. And it's, it's such a cool series. And also, I sort of feel like everything else has been done now. Like, you know, you've got, you've got W Series. You've got uh, Electric Series all over the place now. You've got Formula 1. Mm blah, 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 blah. What, what we haven't got really that's really kicked on in recent years is the ability to pick country against country. 
So I, I, I am going to bring it back and I will be knocking on your door. Um, so it's going to yeah, happen. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, big, hairy, single-seaters. Awesome. Um, yeah. You know, 550 brake horsepower with a, uh, an overtake button, which meant that you got an extra extra 50 horsepower uh, a couple of times. And, um, you know, they were reliable, relatively inexpensive to run, yeah. um, you know, considering it was an international championship. And, yeah, it was good. The, the problem with it, was that the business model that A1GP had created did not work. work. So I think by the time the series finished, there were only four of the 18 or 20 teams that actually covered their own costs, A1 Team Ireland being being one of them. So when we finished A1GP, we owed no one any money and, and moved into GP3. But for most of the teams, it just... It just didn't stack up. Didn't they couldn't up. generate the money, and that's why the championship went under. How good? Yeah, I think, sorry, Harry. I was just going to ask how how um, how good is Adam Carroll as a driver? Like, he, is he is he one of the best who's who's never really gone on to the real big time? In terms of natural skill, Adam's as good as you know any of the top drivers that I've had the the privilege of working with. Apart from you know maybe the a couple that you mentioned at the top of the show, a Mika Hakkinen or a, a Schumacher or a, a Senna. But the, and, and I only say that because he never got the opportunity to drive truly competitive cars in, in all of the series that he did. And, I mean, we tried to get Adam to drive for us for a while, and he had a manager at the time who unfortunately was a bit of a block because he didn't believe in, in A1GP. But we eventually got Adam into the team, and he was pivotal to our success as a team, no question about it. He's um, an incredibly fast driver. And with Jerry Hughes, who we brought in with, as actually Adam and I went and interviewed engineers together because I wanted to have an engineer who had a perfect relationship with Adam. And Jerry Hughes came in, um, exper- very experienced engineer. Uh, we spent time with teams like Williams and so on. And he and Adam just formed that perfect bond where the the driver was sure the engineer knew what he was doing and the engineer could rely on the driver to go out and deliver and it was it was fabulous great experience uh working with them and ultimately um it's a shame that adam didn't get the chance to go on and do what he deserved to which was to go to the to go to formula one or to go to you know indycar racing and i think that's um it's it's a shame but Let's face it, he's in the majority. You know, most drivers do not ultimately get the brakes um, because it's such an expensive sport and you, there's so many factors at play in, in determining whether you get to the top or not. He, he's also just such a nice guy as well. Yeah. I remember I, I, he was another one I, I cornered in the GT Open paddock this year to try and get him <laughs> to come on. And he was just more than happy to give you the time of day and have to chat about what was going on. And so, you know, but as you say, it is in the majority. You know, you, it's only 20 drivers, isn't it? Or, you know, between around that amount that yeah. get to the top of the sport and it's got to be everything come to place not just the talent yeah and i think you know we in, in all the talk that we do about formula one uh and, and motor racing generally that we too often you know gloss over the fact that um when it gets to the top drives and the top drivers of course their careers these days are much 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 longer than they were in decades gone by because of a whole bunch of factors, including safety and the fact that a top Formula One driver now can easily have a career last one and a half to two decades. Look at Lewis, you know, he's been in for a decade and a half and he's still got, you know, more time to go look at Fernando, you know, Fernando and Kimmy, Kimmy, battle of the geriatrics Mm. in 
in in America, you know, during the Grand Prix. So, I mean, it's amazing to see um, that. But, of course, what that means is, is that for every Kimi and every Fernando and every Lewis, that means that there's a young gun who is never going to get the opportunity because the seats are never going to open up. And uh, we all know uh, drivers at the moment who aren't getting the break into Formula One because there just aren't enough opportunities. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, F1 Experiences. F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One, giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsport. Official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets, first-class hotels and transfers, and unprecedented access, including track tours, pit lane walks, VIP hospitality, and loads more. It really is the closest you can get to Formula One. And thanks to F1 experiences you can return to the track this year and motormouth listeners can save five percent on your next f1 experience package by using the code motormouth when booking online at f1experiences.com absolutely it's a it's a tough business out there um now um i think it's about time we plugged your book um, oh yeah my book oh i, I bet <laughs> do you happen to have a copy sitting right there and uh yeah, it's oh, funny but, you should say that i can i can hold it up i can hold up there the it business is of look, winning. the business of winning and so for those that are uh, listening to this and not watching it on on youtube or somewhere else um mark has in his hand his new book uh, the business of winning um which yeah. um covers your your years in the sport and, and uh, some of the lessons that you've learned there and taking it into the into the boardroom which is obviously um a uh, very good thing to do. Tell us a little bit about it. What what was the motivation behind it, first of all? Well, when I left Cosworth, I decided I wouldn't apply for any more jobs because um, I'd kind of had enough of, of working for people and I was getting older. So the last 12, last 10 years, rather, I've had my own business and I go and speak to multinational companies about specifically Formula One, talk about innovation and uh, lots of business topics like digital transformation and uh, how we manage risk and how you build a successful teams. And I know it sounds a very niche area, but it's become my full-time job. And I probably speak at 80 to 100 conferences every year. Um, in a normal year, that means a huge amount of travel. I've, tra- I've traveled more in my job now than I ever did in racing. I think the David Coulthard and I sat down in, I think, three years ago, we I worked out I'd had 149 flights and he had had 170 or something. So, you know, just mental amounts of travel. I'm not very proud of that because of the old carbon footprint. But um, so I'm very busy with the corporate work. And that's really what's driven the book, because the book is essentially it's not really a reflection of my career so much as it's 12 chapters, which each of which is a topic. So an essay, effectively an essay on a particular facet of what companies can learn from Formula One. So there's a chapter on leadership, there's a chapter on teamwork, there's a chapter on, you know, what what could a business learn from seeing how a Formula One pit stop takes place? Well, any of us who've ever complained about customer service will know that if a Formula One team ran customer service, um, it would be run absolutely to perfection, you know. So it's all, it's, it's very much insights from Formula One that you can then extrapolate and use in business. And this book is... Um, I wrote this earlier this year, so it was. Uh, I spent six months in Australia. I have a home in Australia, and uh, during lockdown, I managed to get down to Australia and write the book while I was there. And I really decided to look at what was happening in the in the sport in 2021 and make sure that it was as up to date as possible. So there's a chapter on, you know, Formula One's net zero emissions strategy for 2030. Yeah. So 
environmental topic there. Uh, there's a chapter on diversity and inclusion. You know, the the huge impact that Lewis Hamilton has had in terms of his Black Lives Matter campaigning, the uh, way in which W Series and the FIA Women, uh, Women in Motorsport Commission um, has really tried to, not just tried to, but is successfully addressing, you know, gender diversity in, in racing. So there's lots of topics in there because actually they are all very relevant to the businesses that, that I speak to. So it's a book which I would describe as it's written for the, the business person who might have a passing interest in Formula One. It's also written from the perspective that if you're into F1 and you would like to know how that might apply to wider business, there's also something in there for you. But it, it's definitely not been written as a, a kind of an F1 fan-centric uh, book. It's very much written from a kind of a, a business takeaway perspective yeah. if that makes sense uh, it, it sounds fascinating actually I, I need to read it because um part, part of my day job is still around um uh sponsorship in motorsport one of the companies yeah. i consult with um who you'll probably know is a company called right formula run by a guy called robin fennick and one of the one of the oh, yeah, no, right. yeah, yeah. And one of the clients i look after there is called genpact and they they sponsor um envision virgin racing and formula e but they're all their yeah. their business is a digital transformation business that's what they do it's a really complex business but it's very interesting they use automation and ai and predictive technology to improve company yeah. workflows um but in my daily job i'm literally juggling um what they do as a business and how yeah. that can relate to envision virgin racing and benefit them on track yeah. and then how you take those um, assets and put them back in the boardroom and and make it viable yeah. for business. It's exactly that. So it's it's, it's exactly that. It, I mean, and to be honest, so that, so, t- so Tim, uh, with apologies to Harry, you and I could go off on, on a complete oh, yeah. tangent here. Yeah, and talk about all of this. We could go because, down the total because, hole. So that's the reality. That, that's the reality of what I end up doing. I end up talking to you know big American software companies who want a case study. And how do you use software to improve out business outcomes? Well, of course, you know, Formula One, think about the, you know, uh, strategy software that's being used real time with and remote working, you know, the fact that yeah. we have our strategy teams back at the factory, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Companies love hearing that story. And, yeah. you know, the Netflix Drive to Survive series has only increased the interest that the business community has in Formula One. And that's another reason we're seeing people queuing around the block to get into the United States Grand Prix in well, Austin. Well, I've, I've actually dragged Harry into this world because he's just done a voiceover for Genpact. So, yeah. um, so, <laughs> so oh, good, Harry. It's, it's okay. a family affair. You're a voiceover artist as well. <laughs> oh, I do it all, Mark. I do it all. Uh, <laughs> Multi-talented. <laughs> well, I think I think you two should be setting up your own podcast and talking about sponsorship. <laughs> I think that's the way to go here. Um, but I'll, I'll ask the, the main important question, Mark. Um, where yeah. can we buy the book from and where can we get it? <laughs> good one. Well, you can buy it from, um, you know, Jeff Bezos and and help him to put another rocket up um, in space. Um, um, so you can buy it on Amazon. You can also buy it directly from my publisher, which is Kogan Page, uh, K-O-G-A-N Page, KoganPage.com. And actually, I don't know how we do this, guys, but um, I can, after the show, I'll give you a a discount code, which um, if we can find a way to share that with people yeah. who actually listen podcast um if they then buy the book directly from kogan page they can get a 20 percent discount so. oh absolutely we can put all the all that stuff in the uh, in the links uh, to wherever people yeah. download cool. their podcast for it in the bio and stuff like that so we'll make sure we get that all out Good. um fantastic let's let's talk about um formula one today if if i may be so bold um yeah. 
and in 2021, you know, we just come off the back of a, an amazing race at the Circuit of the Americas, and just not just of the on-track action, but also, you know, as you alluded to, the, the fans at the stands at an incredible event and the grid packed once again. Martin Brundle's grid walk, <laughs> talk of the town. Um, it, it really feels like Comedy. 2021 has been a pretty amazing year so far for Formula One. The, the best, certainly, I think, since, I mean, the last, the last year that I talk about that was amazing was probably 2012, where we had seven different winners in the first seven races. Hamilton this year versus Verstappen. It seems like it's going to go down in history, like Lauda, Hunt, Senna, Prost. They've already had several on-track, off-track excursions. Is it possible with your uh, with your F1 hat on to, to say who you think is is more of a, a complete driver? Because, you know, this is the is this the first year Hamilton's really been challenged since, since Rosberg? Wow, so much in that question. Yeah, I know. Good I, luck with that. I think, <laughs> honestly speaking, and um, I, I love Red Bull, and I think what Max is doing is amazing. He's in this a very special driver. There is a but coming. Uh, the but is that, you know, Lewis is so complete. And I think that, you know, but for a little bit of timing in that race in terms of pit stops and perhaps the pressure that Sir Perez put Lewis under for the first pit stop. I mean, there could have been a victory for Lewis uh, in America. It, it was that close. I mean, the gap at the end of the race was in t- insanely t- tight. Um, I think Lewis, to me, is a slightly more complete driver only because I I feel like he's got the experience you know when you're a seven times world champion you've got he's got the experience to know just that final little bit about dealing with all the different scenarios that can unfold um and of course the mercedes-benz team is formidable and i think you know sitting talking to you at the moment the two of them are separated by 12 and a half points you and i both you know we all know it'll only take um a some silly mechanical issue or a little incident, you know, a front wing end plate being knocked off at turn one in some race, or it'd only take one incident and the whole thing could swivel the other way. And Max cannot afford to give Lewis an inch. And I don't mean in terms of track battles, because actually I would argue that Max needs to stop stop worrying about wheel-to-wheel battles with Lewis because there were a series of accidents there, I think three accidents in four races, which, you know, I think, a couple of which really shouldn't have happened. And Max, I really hope Max doesn't come to look back and reflect on that. I personally found Monza ridiculous. You know, you just, there's just no need. If you have a car that's fundamentally faster than your competitors, which in the case of Red Bull, it is just slightly fundamentally faster, you know, to to risk all everything into turn one, turn two at Monza was just it was just asking for what then happened. And we're so lucky that the halo was there to protect yeah. to protect Lewis. So I, I, I look at that and I think, you know, Max needs to just never let the, the blood rush to his head. So I ultimately, I think that on speed, Max will win the championship with the Red Bull Honda uh, because the package is so good. Um, in terms of completeness, as a driver, I think Lewis could nick it. And if Lewis does win this year's championship, no question about it. Uh, yes, people will say, well, it's his eighth world championship. In many ways, it'll be perhaps his best world championship because he will have done that against a team which had a technical edge uh, for, a, for a, 
a significant proportion of the season. So um, that that's my own view. I'm slightly hedging my bets, but I think it's it's um, in terms of driver completeness. I if it was me, I'd rather be Toto Wolff than Christian Horner. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's going to go down to the wire, isn't it? Either way. Um, and like Harry says, it's it's got to be one of the best. And even that that, that USGP race, you know, it wasn't necessarily full of action, but the the strategy and the you know the last oh, the last brilliant. few laps were just so. It's like, come on, I, I I'm not Lewis's biggest fan necessarily, but even I was like, yeah. come on, son, like a couple yeah. more laps. You're yeah, I mean, there. exactly. And I I think this is it, isn't it? But, I mean, to be honest with you, I when I went on social media on Monday morning and people were saying, oh, it wasn't a very good race. And I'm thinking, did they see the same race as me? I was on the edge of my seat. I thought it was brilliant. It was I a purist. It was, absolute, it was a purist I felt race. A little bit, I felt a little bit sorry for some of the spectators who might be relatively new to F1 and thinking, well, this isn't a great race. You, you had to really understand the strategy yeah. to fully get what was happening. But my goodness, it was... Uh, it was. I mean, someone said it was like a game of chess, you know, and that—that's what it felt like. It was like, is—is is this which way is this going to swing? And of course, the thing with Lewis is that you saw those big chunks of lap time being taken out. And I actually tweeted, you know, if there's one thing in the world you don't want to have, it's Lewis Hamilton behind you on fresher tires. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's nuts. <laughs> yeah. um, and I love it. And I have to tell you guys, um, you know, you've asked me a lot of questions about my career, and obviously it goes back over 30 years, I have absolutely fallen back in love with Formula One to a bigger degree than ever in recent years. Uh, I love the way the sport is today. I love the competitors. I think the teams are all formidable. There isn't a bad team in Formula One today, which wasn't the case when Jordan Grand Prix came into Formula One in 1991. We had a, you know, we had... Some dreadful, dreadful teams dragging themselves around the world, not qualifying for races, and generally embarrassing Bernie Eccleston. So, I think you know from a from every perspective, Formula One's in brilliant shape at the moment, and I'm very excited about it. And I just pray to goodness that the 2022 regulations yeah. achieve achieve even half of what they're hoping them to achieve. Because if they get it wrong, and when you hear see Pat Simmons saying, oh, actually our simulations may not have quite gotten it right. Oh. Actually, they're going to be almost, in fact, in fact, they're only going to be half a second slower than this year's cars. Well, what else have they got wrong? Because no. if, it goes through, if you go through this really expensive set of rule changes, and quite frankly, nothing much changes other than we have worse worse levels of closeness and of course we've got this we've got these close battles because we're currently enjoying very mature regulations which means there's a convergence over time all the teams gradually work out how to to make the most of a current set of rules so i think you know i'm just i love formula one at the moment i think it's brilliant and i thought the race on sunday was just stunning and i think lewis and max it's just Fabulous. Uh, you know, we all wish both of them could win the championship, but it'll be one of them that's standing, getting that FIA award in Paris one day um, in the coming months. Yeah, I know. It's, uh... if, you, if you could pick an era of Formula One, you know, you've obviously worked in a, in a particular era, but, you know, if you could pick any that you, you know, having said what you've just said now, if you could choose any to work in, which one would it be? Get the rose-tinted glasses out. I'd be now. I'd love now. to work in I mean, it would absolutely be now. I mean, there's no question that... Uh, so again, there was somebody on social media the other day saying, uh, or maybe it was actually a mainstream media magazine I was reading, um, talking about the fact that you know we we all 
get to believe that that our heyday was the best time in motorsport. So when I came into Formula One in the 80s, you know, all the journalists and, and teams would talk about Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart and the best days were the 60s. And, and I get that. I completely get that. I loved working in Formula One in the 90s and the 2000s. And, um, you know, uh, of course, I worked in it in the 80s as well as a journalist. So, you know, the Mansell Prost era. But I, lo- I now look at the... McLaren MP4, beautiful car. I mean, technically, agricultural compared to what we have today. And and so I'm I'm not a Luddite, you know. I'm not someone who thinks that all this new stuff is is bad. I think it's great. I think the sport is in a great place. Um, and if I could put myself in a time machine, knock 25 years off and go back and run commercial uh, operations in an F1 team, to, I would do it. I'd, I'd want to do it today because... Of all the things we've just talked about, that connected world that we have with fans, the fact that you can you can do stuff today as a racing team and around the marketing and the commercial side that are better than we could ever have done in the past. And, of course, the safety and the reliability and everything, pretty well every metric you want to look at is better today than at any time in the sport's 70-year-plus history. So... You know, this is a great moment. And I think, you know, one of the, just a a final point I'll make, one of the things that upsets me is when you see the the trawling and the bitterness that goes on on social media between, including with people who really ought to know better. And you realize, and you want, I want to say to them all, you know, actually, guys and girls, we're living in a beautiful moment of Formula One. Enjoy every aspect of it. And by the way, it's only car racing. You know, it's not life and death stuff here. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's just, it's a phenomenal sport. So I think now has never been a better time for Formula One. And it's and it's of great credit to Liberty, Chase Carey, now Stefano Domenicali. It's a great credit to Jean Tot. I think his presidency at the FIA has been one of the best presidencies that, that the sport's ever had. And then I certainly think, going back to the Toto Wolf-Christian Horner uh, point, I think actually we have never had a more formidable lineup of team bosses. Um, there aren't many of them who I would describe as weak. Most of them are actually very good at what they do. And as a result, Liberty, the FIA and the teams have come up with some incredible decisions in recent years, whether it's a budget cap, whether it's the way in which the prize money is more equally uh, shared uh, the the new regulations, the net zero uh, focus for 2030. Lots of very, really good stuff, which I have to say in bygone eras uh, with the leadership that we had back then, we wouldn't have seen anything like that. So I think we're in a good spot. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it is fascinating, that, that sort of diversion, the maturity of technology with, with the current regulations. We had we had Karun Chandok on here on episode nine, ages ago. Uh, and at wow, the, and at nine? The, yeah, and at the time... He's a great guy, isn't he? His quality, oh. like, mind is just ridiculous. Yeah, And we, he, we, we were talking to him then about F1, which at the time was in a slightly different place. And we didn't have quite the, the racing that we were having now, but it was still good. But we were looking ahead to 2022, thinking, oh, we're all excited about these new regulations regulations and clean air and classes uh, cars racing closer together and now like you say we're all a bit like oh god it's, it's got to a point now where formula one's really cool let's not change it but it's too late it's coming and this this sort of d-day is going to arrive and it's going to turn it all to utter shit again um, but, but we but we shall see um and uh, and yet the only other point i want to make before i come on to the next thing is that you mentioned about um formula one's climate change um goals and aspirations and pledges and their 2030 plan what i found interesting if i don't know if our listeners have read and if not you can find it it's publicly available the the pdf is online 
um, you can search for it and find um, Formula One's um, 2030 plan. What I found really interesting about that was something that's totally misunderstood by probably 99% of people on Twitter is that um, the, the actual F1 cars barely contribute to the carbon footprint of Formula One. <laughs> and it's, they're the visible thing. So people are like, those flipping yeah. cars, they're not, they produce something like 0.7% of the right. annual carbon footprint yeah. of Formula One. The big chunk comes from operations and logistics which um, when you think of it like that makes Formula E and things like that, it's a bit like, "Mm," you know, not what's the point, but, you know, it's not, that's not the greenest thing in the world either. You know, they're shipping stuff around the world. Um, So it's just a fascinating subject. And again, I don't want to go down a a, a rabbit hole. I mean, this is it. There's there's lots of gray areas in all of that. And, you know, having said what I said about Jean Todt, the the one thing which I felt um, disappointed about was that because I sat at the FIA engine working group and we came up with the uh, 2014 hybrid engine regulations and that was mishandled in in so many ways you know bernie eccleston wasn't on board and he said so and it's not it wasn't a healthy introduction the fact that the sports rights holder didn't like the engines that the sport was bringing in and then the sport did a really bad job of communicating the fact that they were so energy efficient i mean can you imagine if someone brought out a you know a car a plane a train a boat that used nearly 40% less fuel to do the same thing, everybody would be like, wow, that's just amazing, absolutely astonishing. It literally took years before the media was really beginning to communicate just how incredible the current hybrid powertrains Mm. are. And, of course, we're now on the the eve of of changing them again. But I I really do think that... um, you know, say the sport's in a great place and, you know, some of these big targets that it's got for the future are impressive. And I'm, by the way, also the first person to be watching like a hawk to see if it just becomes a lot of greenwash and we don't actually change anything. But I I think Formula One will because I think Liberty is quite a grown-up organisation. I think FIA are too. And I think people like Toto Wolff and Christian Horner know that the commercial future of the sport is very much dependent on how authentic it is in terms of developing uh, solutions to some of these environmental challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and things mm. like biofuels and all that is, is part of the future. I, I, I will I will actually also say just one one final point and maybe you know I don't want to sort of big up Formula One and oh my God, amazing. But one thing I've seen firsthand this year, which was sped up, I think, by coronavirus, which would have been in the making of I think they had a six year plan or whatever, was to make their broadcast center uh completely Ooh. remote, which it which Ooh. it is. And and that they did that in a matter of months. And it's absolutely incredible yeah, to see what they do from Biggin Hill and how what you see on your TV is controlled by someone down in Kentway, which <laughs> which is yeah, incredible. It's nuts, isn't it? It's mental. There's a a great uh, video, which I'm pretty sure is on the F1 uh, YouTube channel. And it's, I think it's just a three minute tour of Mm. that, that remote broadcast facility. It's worth watching because, you know, as you completely spot on, Harry, they, I think the the statistic was that they managed to deliver it in seven weeks now. And they were saying like, originally it was a five year plan to have a remote broadcasting facility, Thanks to the pandemic, they did it in two months. And uh, I think with one exception, they had one weekend where they had a, I think, had a link go down. Uh, it's been pretty pretty seamless. So I found a really good example. And exactly as you said, Tim, you know, the, the carbon emissions of Formula One are more about the freight logistics and number of people going to the races. Yeah. And the fact that only half of the people have been taking, have been going to the races in some cases compared to a normal year, I'm to- talking in terms of teams, 
I think the teams will review all their operations. Do we actually need to have all those people at races? It rather reminds me of the of the story about someone having a factory tour at Brabham and asking Bernie Eccleston how many people work here, and he said about half of them, uh, which I thought was <laughs> quite a you know a typical Bernie <laughs> comment back yeah. to them. You know, so uh, it's it's a uh, it's been a and the pandemic has been a disaster, of course, for humanity in many ways. But I think for a lot of businesses, Formula One included. It's caused a big rethink about how we do stuff, and I think we're probably coming out the far side the better for it. Yeah, 100%. Now, um, we, we've already taken up far too much of your time, so we'll whiz through this okay. last, last section. Um, uh, we'll, we have a final three, which we'll fire at you in a moment, but some quick fire ones before. Who's your best mate yeah. in racing? Who's your best pal? <sighs> I have so many. I mean, I, I, I have dozens of, of, of really good friends, uh, Toby Moody, he was a long-time yep. MotoGP uh, commentator. He's a really good mate of mine. I do a huge amount of work with uh, David Coulthard. Uh, regard David is a good friend. Uh, we work together every week. Um, so I'd say in the Formula One paddock, if there was somebody I was going to go and grab a beer with as soon as I would walk in, it would be DC, and probably because it wouldn't be the only beer we would have either. <laughs> so it would be good fun. Good stuff. <laughs> what, um, what would you give your... Uh, 18-year-old self uh, advice on if you could go back in time? Trust your gut instinct. Um, I think I, I, t- I overanalyzed too many things during my career and weighed it. St- really, you know, follow your gut. If, you, if you're dealing with somebody you want to work with, just work with them. If, you're, if, you, if you get a job and you're working with somebody who you fundamentally are struggling with, there's probably a good reason for that. So I think, you know, follow your gut. Um, I think when, you know, when I was 18, I probably overanalyzed things a little bit too much. So, uh, you know, you only have one crack at this life. So it's only worth doing the things you want to do and working with the people you want to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we come on to our final three, what are you really good at that's not part of your day job? Have you got a hidden talent? Play any instruments, any languages? Yeah, so I... Um... Yeah, I have been a musician sort of all my life, I suppose. I played in an orchestra for 14 years and um, I, I still play the piano now and again. I think, so my hidden talent, which I've always had, but I haven't really ever done much with it until quite recently, is I'm really good with my hands mechanically. And I mean, I'm not an engineer and I'm not a mechanic, but I've rebuilt a, an Alfa Romeo during lockdown. And I have to tell you, I got so much fun out of that because there's nothing like you know, rebuilding suspension. And I mean, I know this sounds bizarre, but it's kind of, you know, considering I'm not, I'm not a trained mechanic, so yeah. I've had to do it by trial and error. And, you know, when you take something apart and you rebuild it and you're left with a box of bits and you're wondering, what what did those bits used to do? Yeah. So, <laughs> it's, uh, so anyway, so I think my hidden talent is that I'm actually mechanically quite competent, which is um, will come as a surprise to anyone who has worked with me in racing. <laughs> <laughs> that's my idea of hell, taking things apart, putting it back together again, crap and all that sort of stuff. And another, and that's another member of the uh, the Motormouth band, so that's excellent. <laughs> yeah, we're racking very, them up. Oh, very right good. Oh, who yeah. else is in that? So oh, you've got dozens. Eddie as a drummer. Yeah, well, Eddie with the spoons as well. He loves his spoons. Oh, and, and the spoons, yeah. <laughs> well, t- Tim was a, a chorister in his, uh, in his other life. I was. I have, oh, okay. an, I have yeah, an album, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's so I, I, I've dabbled. I've dabbled on on stage and, and voice as well and various things. Yeah. And um, who uh, who else? We've we've got guitarists. We've got yeah, Brendan uh, Hartley. He plays the guitar. Brendan Hartley was a good guitarist. What did Brendan play? Guitar. Guitar. Yeah. Oh right. Have you had Damon Hill on the show yet? Not yet. No, we, we haven't. Uh, a much better guitarist than he ever lets on. He's uh, he's he's properly good. <laughs> 
Well, we'll add, we'll and of course, he looks like George Harrison. The older he, he gets, the more he looks like a beetle. So. <laughs> he does. He's rock, he does rock the hair and and the facial hair quite well. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's Look, Mark, we have, as Tim has said, taken up far too much of your time. So we're going to ask you our final three questions, which we ask to all of our guests. And this week, they are brought to you by F1 Experiences. Uh, Tim, do you want to kick off with the first one? Sure. Mark, what's got you excited at this very moment? At this very moment or just generally at that moment? Whatever, whatever, Whatever takes your fancy. Okay, at this very moment, I'm terribly excited about the fact that tomorrow I'm moving house. But other than that, in motor racing, I'm very excited to see Lando Norris's first victory because I think that's long overdue. And I think he's going to do it in these last five races. And if Lando does it in the middle of the Hamilton-Verstappen duel, what what an exciting event that's going to be to watch for. You've got me excited now just by saying that. Um, Right, okay, Uh, if... If you were not doing what you're doing, if you hadn't worked in Formula One and got on to what you do now, what would you be doing? Was there anything uh, else? Yeah, I would have worked. I would have worked with planes. I've been around planes all my life, and I would have definitely worked in aviation. I prob- might have been a pilot. I definitely would have worked in in something to do with uh, planes and and helicopters because I've always enjoyed that. Very cool. Last question for you: What are you scared of? I am. Um, terrified at the age of 59 of ever dabbling in anything that will make me look completely out of touch and old so um and and i'm so conscious of this when i'm on social media because you know when you when you're chatting to i mean i was chatting to a bunch of fans the other day and one of them direct messaged me and we we started having this conversation and it turned out she was 15 and i'm thinking I'm 59, you know, this is not right. You know, so I, the thing I'm most scared of is being, being in any way out of touch and inappropriate to the fan base that Formula One is most in need of developing, which is that, that younger audience. So I'm very conscious of the fact that I need to kind of be an elder statesman and uh, make sure that I don't ever fall into that trap of being just an old, out of touch, sad person looking back on your career well i think you're far from it so uh, so no concerns there well mark listen it's been fantastic having you on the show um everyone go out and check out the business of winning um it's been fascinating talking to you there's an awful lot more uh, we could dive into i think we're gonna have to have um mark gallagher mark two um to to go deep into those rabbit holes that um clearly are there for the taking um, but Mark, in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us. That's been the Motormouth Podcast. See you next time. Before you go, one final reminder to check out F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel programme of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first-class hotels, travel and exclusive behind-the-scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experiences offer packages like no other. So to book your F1 Experiences package, head online to f1experiences.com and if you enter code MOTORMOUTH, you'll get 5 percent off too.
Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.